Well, I'm not Pastor Brett. <laughs> but I believe the Lord has, has uh, will meet us faithfully, even though he's not here this morning. Pastor Brett and his family are uh, taking a short vacation to the Grand Canyon this weekend and uh, certainly want to pray for the Lord's safety as they, as they travel and more than that, to pray for refreshment for them as a family. So um, I encourage you to do that. We are going to take a look at a word this morning that I think is, is misused in our culture quite a bit. And I'd like to start by asking, quite honestly, have you ever, have you ever used a word incorrectly? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, a little boy stood up in his, in his uh, science class to declare, um, the body consists of three parts, the brainium, the borax, and the abominable cavity. The brainium, of course, contains the brain. The borax contains the heart and lungs. And the abominable cavity contains the bowels, of which we have five. A, E, I, O, and U. <laughs> yeah. Some misunderstanding there. Well, you know, I think there is a, a word that we use in our culture quite a bit that we really do not grasp the meaning of. And that word is holy. The word holy. I'm wondering if this week, if you've heard anybody exclaim, holy, fill in the blank. Anybody this week? No? Thank the Lord for that. The truth is that many of us find our, ourselves hearing that and perhaps even doing that. Holy cow, you know? What does that word actually mean? We've learned that, we've learned that colloquialism, if you will, from... How many of you remember the Batman series in the 1960s? Yeah. Da -da 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 -da. Yeah. And Robin, the boy wonder, right? And he had this habit of ex, ex, uh, providing the exclamation point uh, for, for Batman. And so much so that, that uh, it's even recorded. Some of his exclamations are recorded in Wikipedia. And I have to tell you, there are hundreds of them. I, there's a few that stand out to me. One of my favorites is, holy alter ego, Batman. Or holy backfire, holy ball and chain, holy bargain basements, Batman. Here's one. Holy uncanny photographic mental processes. <laughs> I think that's speaking of a, an extraordinary dream of some sort. Here's the best one. Holy understatements, Batman. Yeah. That word holy, what in the world does it mean? Well, I'd like to peer into the scripture a little this morning and discover a bit of what that word actually means. If you would, turn to Exodus chapter 3. 
Exodus chapter 3, we have the story here of Moses being called by God, encountering a burning bush. It's interesting that, that um, this story has become, um, I think, a very a, a touchstone for us in a lot of ways in what it means to encounter God. And the word holy is used here. Let's read together uh, Exodus chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Now Moses was pasturing the flock of, his, of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. So Moses said, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight, why the bush is not burned up. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. And then he said, do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. He said also, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Then Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Let's unpack this just a little bit. Horeb, well, let's first of all, Start, why in the world is Moses here on the backside of the desert, um, here in no man's land, if you will? Any, any ideas on that? I mean, we normally think of Moses as this great leader leading the children of Israel. Why in the world is he here? Well, if you remember, Moses grew up as part of the royal family in Egypt, Right? And as he grew up in his adulthood, he discovered this injustice taking place in, among the people of Israel. Uh, they were slaves, captive to do the work of the royalty there in Egypt. And he struck an Egyptian guard, killing him. And with that, Moses was a fugitive. He fled into the wilderness. And there he lived for 40 years. We see here that he was pasturing the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, on the west side of the wilderness, if you will say, the back side of the wilderness, out in the middle of nowhere. And he's on this mountain, Horeb. It's called here the mountain of God. We know it as well as Mount Sinai. That is where Moses met God, and where Moses returned after he had experienced the exodus of the children of Israel from Egypt, they returned to this mountain where Moses experienced the Lord's call. The angel of the Lord spoke to Moses there. It's interesting, this word is this unspeakable name that we know here in the scripture, the name of God himself. In, 
in the transliteration of that Hebrew word is simply Y-H-W-H. How do you say that? Well, it sounds like Yahweh. Do you hear that? Yahweh. Yahweh. You can't say it. There's no vowels in there, are there? It's the unspeakable name. Now, we, we transliterate that Yahweh, don't we? Or many would, in the, in the past, have uh, that word Jehovah. Jehovah is also that same name, but it's, in a, it's written in a way that it's not, you cannot actually say the name of God. That's because the name of God is sacred. Now, God spoke to him, the Lord, the unspeakable name. We also know the angel of the Lord here is the pre-incarnation of Christ Jesus himself. This is God speaking to Moses in a blazing fire. Now, why in a, in a fire of all places? Well, we often think of fire being the place of judgment. We've been studying Revelation these past months, and most recently we've discovered fire means judgment, doesn't it? Absolutely. So why in the world would God choose to speak to somebody from a fire? Well, take note that the bush was not burned up. God speaks in judgment against those things that, that are contrary to his design, and they would burn up. But that which is righteous is purified by the fire. It is tempered by the fire. It is preserved by the fire. And so God speaks to Moses here. Moses recognizes this thing this unusual happening, and he turns aside. And it's at that point that God reaches out and actually speaks to Moses. I'm thinking, how many times in our lives do we notice something unusual going on? Do we take the time to stop, to turn aside, and consider the fact that God may be speaking to us? Maybe it's in the midst of a a difficulty that we face. Maybe it's in the, in the, out in the middle of nowhere we, we see something unusual. Do we take notice or do we just go on our, on our merry way? I think God wants us to take notice. And when we do, very often God will speak to us. It was a deliberate response on Moses' part. He must go see. He turned aside very, uh, very intentionally. And when the Lord saw, the, the word Lord here again is Yahweh, the, the, the eternal one, the self-existent God. God called him. When the Lord saw him, God called him. Now, the word for God here, God called him, is the word Elohim. And in Hebrew, that is a plural title. It is not singular. And if we would translate it absolutely literally in our language, we would 
probably say God's. But we understand here that God is revealing himself as the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. He is three and yet one. It's similar to, um, uh, well, certain vegetables. With certain vegetables we call asparagi, right? Multiple asparagus? No, not that. But the truth is that this word Elohim speaks of more than one. That is who God is. It is also a title. It's, it's the title Supreme Sovereign God. Now he says, don't come near. Don't come near. This is God saying, I demand respect. Remove your sandals, for you are standing on holy ground. This speaks of reverence. But more than that, it, it highlights the fact that Moses is very conscious of his unworthiness. Now, why in the world would God say, remove your sandals? Take your shoes off. I'm, I'm curious, if you have shoes on that you can slip off, do that right now. Just, just humor me. Just take, take your shoes off. What's different? Oh, it's cool, yeah. Wow, you didn't know your feet were sweating, did you? Yeah? What else? What do you feel? You feel the carpet, don't you? And you can actually even feel there's texture in that carpet. Wow. You know, when we take our shoes off, we become a lot more sensitive to things, don't we? Secondly, I think God spoke to Moses, says, take your shoes off. This is holy ground. Not only because he wanted to be, him to be sensitive to what is going on in that environment, but he also wanted, he invites Moses to that place of vulnerability. How many of you hear a, a sound in the middle of the night and get up in your bare feet and go out and inspect what's going on in your Sun City gravel lawn. <laughs> you know? Not many of us do because we're terribly vulnerable. We can't do that. We become vulnerable. We take our shoes off. That's, that's uh, a place that God can speak to us. Even most dramatically, God often speaks to us when we are vulnerable. We put our defenses down, the shields come down, and we can hear God's voice. It's interesting, there's a, a very parallel passage in Joshua chapter 5. Those of you who have been coming on Wednesday night have been through this passage recently. It, it, it reads like this, Now it came about when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, a man was standing opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, rather indeed, I, I, I indeed come now as captain of the host of the Lord. And Joshua fell on his face and bowed down and said to him, What has my Lord to say to his servant?" And the captain of the Lord's host said to Joshua, Remove your sandals from your feet, 
for the place where you are standing is holy ground. The place where you are standing is holy ground. Now, where was, jo where was Joshua? They had just come through, they'd just come into the promised land across the Jordan. Big miracle thing going on right there. And right in front of them, it says right there in the text, they were right there at Jericho. Jericho was the first place of conquest for the children of Israel as they came into the promised land. They are getting ready for battle, right? They're getting ready to move into God's provision for them, and they are are hyping it up big time. And what does God do? If you'll see, notice in the previous chapter, chapter four, God says to Joshua, now I want you to take all of the men and make sure that every male here is circumcised in your army. Are you kidding me? You want me to circumcise all these bad dudes who are ready to take the city? Yeah. You see, circumcision is God's covenant sign with his people, right? And many of those people in the, in the congregation of Israel had never been circumcised. They were wandering in the desert for 40 years. They had not experienced that, that sign, that covenant sign. And so God says, I want to make sure that happens before we go. But wait a second, we're getting ready to take this city. What happens? All these guys get circumcised. And, and I'm telling you, these guys, some of them were 40 years old, right? Ouch. <laughs> and they're as vulnerable as they can be. They're getting ready to take the city, but they are vulnerable as they can be. And God says to Joshua right there, then and there, take your shoes off. What does a mighty man of war do without his shoes? God is very intent about us being vulnerable before him so that he can communicate to us. That's part of what's going on. Now, why is this ground holy? Let's go back to Exodus chapter 3. Uh, why, why is this ground holy? Because God is there. God is holy, and where he is, that place is holy. This is the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Again, this is the word Elohim, the sovereign one. And Moses' response to that revelation is that he hid his face. He hid his face and was afraid. I have to say, I think that's an honest, contrite response. If Moses um, would have responded in any kind of manner of pride, quite honestly, I think he probably, that would have been the end of the story for Moses. Crispy critters right then and there, you know? And he was afraid to look at God. Now, the word holy, this is holy ground. In the Hebrew is, is chodesh. It means a sacred place or a sacred thing, something that is consecrated or dedicated. 
It comes from a word uh, that sounds like chadash. And it means to be clear or to make clear. It's kind of like, well, the connotation is being unsullied or clean. How many of you are, are love to go four-wheeling in your big, strong pickup and make everybody? Yeah, a few of us. What do you do when you've been through the mud? You've got mud all over your windshield. You clean it off so that you, you, you can see clearly through the windshield. I know something the rest of us can, can um, I, how do I say, identify with. How many of you have driven into the sun recently and discovered this film on the inside of your windshield? Yeah, yeah, most of us have. That, most people who breathe in their car have that going on, okay? Now, this, this idea of being clear means to get rid of all of that stuff, all of that stuff that gets in the way between us and God. It's a description of a specific place where God is present or things in, that are set apart for God. Now, a different word is used to describe God himself. There are two places in the scripture where we see this word in triplicate. Only two. Holy, holy, holy. One of those is Revelation chapter 4. If you would turn there with me. Revelation chapter 4. We've been here within the last several months. This glorious picture of this scene in heaven. In verse 5, the apostle John writes, And from the throne proceeded flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder, and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And in the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. And the first creature was like a lion, and the second like, like a calf. And the third creature had a face like that of a man, and the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings and full of eyes around and within, and day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was, who is, and who is to come. This word we're reading in the original text is in Greek. The word is Hagios. It means physically pure, morally blameless. It comes from the word hagos, which means an awful thing. A-W-E, full thing. I love that word because it, it's, a, it's, it's one of those words that looks like what it sounds like when, and exactly what it means. Ah, oh, mouth wide open, I can't believe this. This is amazing. That's, what this, that's where this word comes from. The Lord God here is kurios. Other words, in Hebrew, it is translated as Adonai or sovereign one. 
the Almighty, the Lord Almighty. The divine name found in 11 books of the Bible, nine places right here in Revelation. Who was and who is and who is to come speaks of God's eternality. He has no beginning. He has no end. It's a glorious scene. And the creatures never, ever cease to say, holy, holy, holy. You've heard Brett, uh, Pastor Brett, quote R.C. Sproul. It's interesting that they're not saying mercy, mercy, mercy. They're saying holy, holy, holy. Now, that's because the word holy is more descriptive of God's entire being and all of his characteristics. They all get flooded into this word holy. Now let's look at the other passage where this word, these words are found in triplicate. Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. Here in chapter 6, we see a similar, or perhaps maybe you could say even the same scene, um, it is, it is very, very much like what we see in Revelation. In the, starting in verse 1 of chapter 6, In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory, and the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Wow. That's incredible, isn't it? Now, let's... This word here, holy, is the Hebrew word chadosh. It means sacred, chadosh. Now let's inspect this passage just a little more. In the year of King Uzziah, who's Uzziah? Uzziah was a good king among the kings of Israel. It's interesting, however, he was good to a point, but... Not fully there. It's it um, in in Second Chronicles chapter twenty six. We see a very good picture of of who he is. He came to power when he was sixteen years old and reigned for fifty two years in Jerusalem. The scripture says there, verse four of chapter twenty six of Chronicles, first. Second Chronicles, he did right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father Amaziah had done. He continued to seek the Lord, uh, continued to seek God in the days of Zechariah, who had understanding through the vision of God. And then this curious statement, and as long as he sought the Lord, God prospered him. In 2 Kings chapter 15, we see another very 
brief snippet of the identity of Uzziah. Again, it speaks of the fact that he came to power when he was 16 years old. He reigned for 52 years. He did right in the sight of the Lord according to all his father Amaziah had done. Verse 4, only the high places were not taken away. The people still sacrificed and burned incenses in the high places. You see, Uzziah was a good guy. He was a good king, and God prospered him, and he did very well, but he did not remove these high places. What were these high places? They were places of worship, of idolatry, of idol worship for the children of Israel. You see, the children of Israel knew God was God alone, and yet they sought to bring into their life this religion of the locals. Most specifically, the worship of Baal, or Baal, as some would say. He was a god of fertility in their imaginations. And they worshipped these foreign gods in these high places. Uzziah was a good king. He, he loved God. God honored him. But he did not remove these high places. And so it would continue to be a part of the life of the children of Israel. Things went well for Uzziah. But back in 2 Chronicles, again in chapter 26, verse 16 says, But when he became strong, his heart was so proud that he acted corruptly. And he was unfaithful to the Lord his God, for he entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. Well, wait a second. What, what's so bad about that? I mean, come on, God. He's, he's entering your temple. He wants to burn incense. That's, the, that's what you do in the temple. It's, it's a, an act of worship. Surely that's a good thing. <laughs> Not so. Verse 17, then Azariah the priest entered in after him along with 80 priests of the Lord, valiant men. And they opposed Uzziah the king and said to him, it is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. Get out of the sanctuary, for you have been unfaithful and will have no honor from God. Wow, that takes some guts to speak to the king in that tone, right? But Uzziah, listen to this, with censer in his hand, the censer is what the, what the incense was burned in. With censer in his hand for burning incense, he was enraged. And while he was enraged with the priest, the leprosy broke out on his forehead before the priests in the house of the Lord beside the altar of incense. King Uzziah was a leper to the day of his death, and he lived in a separate house being a leper, for he was cut off from the house of the Lord. Uzziah was a good guy, and God blessed him. But he refused to remove some of the things that would seek to take his God's people into the worship of other gods. 
And he became proud in all of the good things that he had done and walks in to play the role of both priest and king in the temple. Psalm 110 is very clear in saying that the only one, the only one who can be both king and priest is the Messiah. So Uzziah steps into that role and God says, you are not going to have any of that. Out of here, right now. And he's struck with leprosy. This is the, this is the context for this vision for, that, that Isaiah has. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted. The Lord is that word Adonai, sovereign one. He's seated on the throne. He's in command and he's at rest. He is on the throne that speaks of great authority. He's lofty and exalted, imposing height, even taller than Pastor Brett. (laughs) And the train of his robe is filling the temple. You see, his power and his authority reaches everywhere. And the seraphim stood. It's the only time that seraphim, that word is mentioned in the scripture, actually, that they are named there. Revelation 4 speaks of creatures but they are very similar, and many would say they are the same thing. And they never cease to say, they are standing giving honor to, to God, saying, holy, holy, holy. This triplicate ref, reference here is a way to give uh, special meaning and emphasis to the word. It's, the, it's, it's elevating it to the highest degree, the third degree, if you will. It's like capitalizing and underlining and putting it in bold type. Especially the last holy. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. That's what the seraphim are saying and they never cease to say it. He is the Lord of hosts. He is a sovereign one over all of heaven's angel armies. And the whole earth is filled with his glory. Every single nook and cranny. You see, there is no place, no matter how far, no matter how close, no matter how big, no matter how small, that the glory of God cannot penetrate. I think some of us here this morning need to hear that. Maybe you've had a place in your life that says, God, it's just too dark. I can't go there. I don't think that you can really meet me in that place. 
There is no place too far or too close that the glory of God cannot reach. Psalm 139 asks this question, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to the heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in the place of the dead, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest parts of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me and the light around me will be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. And the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. Is there a place that you've believed in your life that is so desperately dark that God cannot touch it? Or will not touch it? Back there in Revelation chapter, or excuse me, Isaiah chapter 6, we see that the foundations of the thresholds trembled. Where are the foundations? In this building, they are at the walls and under our feet. They're not seen. They are hidden things. They're the core of what makes this building stand. God can see even there. And even those things tremble at his holiness. And we hear this voice, the voice of truth, the voice of God himself. And the whole temple is filled with smoke. How many of has have it anybody in here ever had a house fire? Okay, a few of us. I'm I'm sorry to hear that. If there was structure left after your fire, what did it smell like? It smelled burnt. How do you how do you get that burn smell out? You can't. It 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 permeates Everything, smoke is one of those things that gets into everything. You bet, I know you've been to a campfire, right? You come home, you smell like the fire, right? This is the expression of the fact that God's glory is able to permeate everything. And what is Isaiah's response? Isaiah's response says, verse 5, Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He is ruined. There is absolute devastation there. But what is God's response? Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. God's response is cleansing. But it's painful. It's devastating and it's traumatic. But it's complete. That's God's response 
to when we recognize our absolute need of God in the midst of his holiness. Now the word here used for holy, kadosh, is a word that is, here's another 25-cent word. It's a word that is ubiquitous. Ubiquitous. Take that home. It's that word that means it, it, it's everywhere. It's absolutely everywhere. Omnipresent. All the time. Wow. If that's what the holiness of God is about, that means even in these places that we see as profoundly evil, the holiness of God is able to reach even there. We see here the fact that the word holy is not a single descriptor of God, but it's all-inclusive. It speaks of his transcendence. His power, his love, his purity and perfection, his mercy and his justice. And in all of that, in light of all of that, it describes the fact that he is totally other, completely beyond our comprehension. It speaks of God's identity. It's not just a description about him, but it tells us who he is. Transcendence. Just let's let's unpack that word just a little bit. The word is built, it's a it's built of several different words. One is trans, right? What's that mean? A Trans-Siberian Railroad. It means a railroad that goes across Siberia, right? So it's transcendent. Ascendant, we, we get the word ascend and descend from that. It goes across, it goes across the barriers. It, it, it actually climbs across. It climbs up or it climbs down and exceeds the limits. Philippians chapter 2 is one of my favorite passages in the Bible. There the apostle writes, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God something to be grasped or clutched or hung on to. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, becoming and being made in the likeness of men. It goes on to say he became obedient even to the point of death. Death on a cross. This is God transcending. This is God Almighty. Holy, holy, holy God Almighty. Transcending, moving from from that place in heaven and reaching to us. I have to tell you that I think that is one of the most profound pictures of God's holiness that we can ever even begin to calculate. That God, who is totally other, would reach to us even long before we even knew we had a need of him, according to the Apostle Paul. Christ Jesus died for the ungodly. 
holy, holy, holy. That's what it means. And it means more than that. It means power. Power and authority. We've got lots of people around with authority, don't we? But not a lot with power to back up that authority. God has the authority and the power to accomplish anything that he wants. He is holy. He is love. Ah, the love of God. Thank him for the love of God. Amen? Amen. It's not merely an emotion, though. Love is a verb. Love is God reaching out to us. You see, love as a verb has to have an object, right? And who is that object? It's us. All of his creation. It includes, holiness includes purity. We talked about that before. Perfection without blemish or compromise. He is immutable. Oh, there's another 25-cent word. What does that mean? Not quite. Unchangeable, perhaps. But more than that, it means that he is congruent within himself. In other words, he doesn't contradict himself. How many of you have heard somebody say, Ah, the Bible is just full of contradictions. I can't believe it. No, it's not. No, it's not. To illustrate that point, we often think of another attribute of God is that he is, he is just. Justice. He's the deliverer of justice. Okay, that's, that's great. How many of you have uttered the words or heard some way say, well, that's just not fair. I need fairness. Really? Really? You want fairness from God? I don't think so. I don't think so because what, what, who are we? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And what's, what is, what is the, the judgment for sin? Death. Yes. So God is judge. He is holy. But he also is merciful. How can that, wait a second, that, if God is judge, how can he be, how can he be merciful? It's okay. You can, you can I'll, I'll let it go this time. Is that justice? No, justice is meeting out the verdict according to the letter of the law. But mercy says, I'll pay the penalty. The penalty has to be paid. I'll pay the penalty for you. It's interesting. I had a gentleman come up to me last night after I spoke too long. And he, he, he said, he said, you know, I'm, I'm working at trying to parent my children. 
And I'm not sure how to deliver justice and mercy. How do I do that? And I said, well, if you really want to model God's activity toward us, Next time your child, you, you, you understand they, there's consequences to a particular behavior. Maybe it's you don't get to watch television for three days. What do you do? How, do you say, N- sorry, you can't watch television? Even though you say you're sorry. I know you're sorry. I heard you say you're sorry. But dad, dad, it's not fair. Yeah, it is fair. Because that's what we agreed on. But if the child says, I'm sorry, don't we just forgive him and say, it's no problem. It's okay. It's okay. No. Justice says we still have to, we still have to meet the test. But mercy is the dad saying, son, I know you're sorry. And the penalty for do- what you've done is no television for three days. I'll tell you what. I'll commit myself to not watch television for three days for you. I'll pay the debt for you. And then plan to spend that time with your son instead. That's justice and mercy working side by side. That's who God is. He is holy. So what difference does all this make? So God's holy. Well, the the scripture is, is very clear there in Leviticus, the, 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 the expansion of the law, chapter 11, God says, be holy, for I am holy. Yeah. The apostle Peter echoes that in the, in the New Testament. His first epistle there in chapter 1, verse 15, he says, be like the holy one who called you. Be holy yourselves also in all your behavior because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Notice it says, be holy for I am holy, not be holy as I am holy. Be holy because God is holy. Set your life apart because God has set himself apart and he invites you into his holiness. What in the world does that mean? Look at with me in closing 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. This is one of those passages that, that continues to reverberate and, um, how do I say, come to life for me. Because it is, it is still mysterious in many ways. Some people believe, Oswald Chambers writes that, that many believe that Jesus died for our sins out of sympathy. Just because he loves us. Now he came to earth to die for our sins to pay our debt. Because we're guilty. Chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians, beginning in verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us or constrains us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. 
And he died for all that they who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. That's takeaway one. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no man according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a brand new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were entreating through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God. That's the substitution that's taking place. It's not just God dying for you because he he loves you so much because you're so cotton-picking cute. No. This is the exchange. He became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God because we're guilty. Every single one of us. The holiness of God reaches into our lives and invites us into his righteousness. That's amazing. That's the word awesome all over it. Let's pray together.